if it's valuable to you, there's going to be eventually someone who's going to, 50 years from now, you may never meet, who's going to look at this and say, wow, I don't know who this person was, but they saved all this stuff and it is amazing. I don't get out there just because I have a name. I get there because I worked my butt off to get there. Hello, and welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast, sponsored by Harlequin Floors, the world leader in floors, stage systems, and studio equipment for the performing arts. Our podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Robb. And my name is Anna Aguilera. Richard Bryan shares his experience documenting technical theatre with us today. Richard Bryant is in his final year as a Master of Arts candidate in the University of Idaho's business program. From 2013 to 2020, he has lived and worked on the twin island nation of Trinidad and Tobago as an assistant professor in theatre design and production at the National Academy of the Performing Arts. He's been both a technician and designer for a variety of stage and television productions over the years, as well as a writer, presenter, and online content producer for the Facebook group Archiving Technical Theatre History. I'm so excited about this. Richard is a proud member uh, representative for both the United States Institute for Theatre Technology, USITT, and the International Organization of Scenographers, Theatre Architects, and Technicians, OISTAT. Welcome to the show, Richard. Well, thank you. What a wonderful, warm, fantastic, stupendous <laughs> introduction. I, I I couldn't have written it better myself. <laughs> Amazing. Are you sure? <laughs> well, no, no, it's it's okay. It's okay. I, I like having fun. So, you know, because life is too much stress lately and we need more fun. We need more laugh. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about I'm going to start writing where I'm most in archiving technical theater history. Um, what what began this interest and in, and project for you? It was something that kind of fell into my lap. Like most things, it's right place, right time. I was kind of at ends of of what I what I wanted to do, and I had no particular like aim in like oh I'm going to go study technical theater history, or I'm going to go study this thing. It's kind of like the story that uh, Lars Ulrich tells about uh, the beginning of Metallica. He's like, he put in an ad in a magazine and he was the guy that said, looking for a, for a guitar player. And there was James Hetfield who said, looking for a drummer. And they just found each other. My version of that is I was on LinkedIn one night and going through some of the message boards. And there was a, a, a professor, a gentleman named uh, Jeffrey Gress. Uh, who's a wonderful human being, wonderful teacher. He's an all-around good egg. And he was working on an idea of how to better, I guess the word is holistically, capture information that relates to theater history or tech theater history in, in some form of that. And I basically answered it. I answered him. I said, I'm interested in kind of what that is that you're doing. And that was the, really the beginning of the idea. That led us to a conversation, and we eventually met at USITT in Texas, I think it was. And he introduced me to Professor William Kenyon of Penn State University. And then that just kind of started the, the floodgates opening. The first project that we kind of started talking about was the Eisenhower uh, George Eisenhower uh, collection of theater artifacts, which are housed at Penn State University. They were gifted to the university. And 
they had been sitting there for years. The one of the earlier professors, a gentleman named Bill Allison, who's a, again another wonderful human being, theater historian, a collector. He knew Eisenhower. He knew a lot of the big people in tech theater, and they essentially gifted him this information, these things, these artifacts to him. And in a very early edition of Tabs magazine, I think it was, it's got to be at least 40 years now, um, he had written about how he had this collection. And it was just kind of sitting there waiting to be picked at and discovered and looked through. And it just kind of sat there, like all things. And it wasn't until myself, William, and Jeff got in the same room and they, we were like, well, let's, let's move this down the road a little bit. Which led to, um, at the time, and fortune smiled on us, the president of USITT at the time was from Penn State. And so that kind of helped grease the wheels a little bit. And we got a small little travel grant. And myself and seven others, um, whose names, I'm sorry, I wish I could remember them off the top of my head. We went down there. And it was, it was a comedy of errors in, in many ways. One is we were really enthusiastic about what we were going to get into, but we also didn't understand the volume of, of what was there. William had seen it all the time, and Jeff, I think, had maybe taken a peek at it, but the, for, the, for the rest of us who had never seen it, it was like opening up the doors to, to, the, to the museum and getting to see everything that's in their collection all, all at once. And so it was, uh, we were, we are not clearly not professional archivists or people who do any of that kind of collating or putting, you know, figuring out where all this stuff goes. So we were stopping every five minutes to be like, Hey, check this out. Hey, check this out. And we didn't get anywhere. <laughs> we clearly didn't get anywhere. That was exa- oh, that'd was- be exactly what I would be doing. I'd be like, what? <laughs> I, I so want to know all the things you found there. <laughs> oh, it's, it, we're going to have to make that part two. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's a second podcast. <laughs> so we walked into it really blind on, in a lot of ways and without really a game plan. So it was, it was whoever was in there before us had a system, but it was like a dot matrix system, you know, a little dot matrix printer. And we didn't, we, we couldn't read it. We didn't have the key to kind of unlocking how this all went. So it was a lot of fumbling through things in the, in the interim, in William's not office, but his kind of like his uh, his little studio room, they had a bunch of uh, lighting equipment from the University of Iowa. And again, I can't remember the gentleman's name whose collection it was, but it was sent to William because of the floods or something. And he had a repository; he could space, he could hold it there. And we ended up going through that uh, that information and actually documenting it, taking photos of it, and and, and whatnot. And so that's kind of what started the, the, the group of people being interested in this idea of, you know, oh, there's all this stuff that we've kind of shoved under stairs or put into closets or kind of are lost somewhere in the lofts of, of, our, of our various performing arts complexes and theaters. And so we're, we, we were starting to try and generate some interest about it because what, we also had to write an article about it and, and you know, share this, our findings with the History and Heritage Committee of USITT. And from there, it was kind of like, well, how uh, best do we get this information out to people? And we weren't in the business of making websites. Some of us had personal ones or business ones or things like that. But 
to try and figure out how in the world you make this interactive was it was beyond our our scale. So obviously, social media is starting to get that ball rolling, and some and I said, well, I'll, I'll start a Facebook group, and thinking there's going to be like ten people that are going to be interested in this thing, and. So that's how it started. It was me, Jeffrey Gross, William Kenyon, the, the sixth or seven other people that actually had social media accounts at the time. And it was just like, okay. And I would send it out to someone or here or there. And when we got to 50 people, I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. Then it got to 100. Then it got to two. And it just kept going and going and going and going. And you know, at some point, we hit 10,000 people. And I'm sitting there going, I, this has become unimaginably big. Because I was like, all of a sudden, I'm really responsible for these people. I, I, I could go into the, 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 the pluses and minuses of running a Facebook group. But again, that's another, that's another podcast, I think. But the challenge became, so we, we got that ball rolling. And all of a sudden, we found a lot of people who didn't necessarily talk about the fact that they were interested in this stuff. But now they had a forum to kind of talk about it. Because there's a lot of documenting this or documenting that as it relates to a show. You know, whether it's the acting or the music or the costumes or, or whatever it may be. But not, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a, a repository or a source where people who were his theater historian interested people and like technology and were getting praise for the people that were the engineers, the people that we don't really talk too much about or know much about in our, or read about in our theater classes. I mean, we, I've got more books about lighting designers and scenic designers, but I don't have anything about the engineers. And most people aren't going to be interested in a book by George Eisenhower per se, because his books are $200 and they're coffee table size. You know, I mean, it's, it, you're talking to a very small audience, but when we started putting the Facebook group out there, there's, there is an audience, there's a bigger audience than we understand. And, and hopefully through this group, we're able to be a, a little bit more of a, an advocate to 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 say look companies out there whether it be etc or avalites or whomever it is whoever the big companies are to be like look your companies your technologies have really made a difference now some of them have done fantastic jobs of consolidating this stuff and another amazing resource is richard finkelstein who's an amazing photographer and he i feel like he's been everywhere He's got pictures of everything. He alone, he's, he would be an interesting cat to listen to his stories. But you know, like I said, there's all this kind of pieces and pu- pieces out there. And we're just really trying to put some of the puzzle together so that, you know, I'm not the one trying to run this group the whole time. It's like this group has to live beyond me. So I'm really grateful for the people that have kind of taken up and keep putting stuff out there. When we crossed into the international world, with uh, Chris Van Houten out of Belgium or Umberto De Nino in Italy. We have people in Spain, people in Germany. I mean, it, it's not just our little corner of the world. It's, there is a lot of this stuff. And, you know, it was eye opening when I was in, when I lived in Trinidad and we went to the parochial, a parochial school to do some sort of like get kids interested in, in the performing arts and things like that. And, they had a small little stage in a, in a presentation area, and I walked back, and there are some old strand dimmers, and it's like, how in the world did these get here? And you put, you start putting the story together because you're like, well, 
former British Commonwealth. They probably had a lot of access to those types of resources. British that came over, the Europeans that came over, they probably bought these resources over. And that's why these things exist. And so you start to learn, you know, the world isn't all these separate pieces. All of a sudden you start to see where these things start to interconnect. So that's a long-winded answer to a very short question. So it it, it just kind of it it's it's one of those things where, you know, it's I'm uh, I'm stunned by it, and also it's a bit overwhelming because there are things that interest me in terms of research, but it's not enough that necessarily it's it's enough to. I mean, I could write about it, I could talk about it, but you know, I it's not a twenty four seven thing for me. Uh, I I like to believe that there are other things that I'm interested in. So um, I'm glad that our baby, our group baby, has grown some legs and is walking, and I hope that it can and it learns to run and it you know, gets broadened into, into other things. So I think it's really important what you said that there, this, there is this community. I, I don't remember when I joined, uh, archiving th technical theater on Facebook that must have been, I don't know, I don't know, five, six years ago. Is that possible? I don't know how old the group is. I, it, it started in, uh, t let's see, 20, 2013, I want to say 2014, I think. Yeah, that yeah, because I haven't had Facebook for a couple of years now. So that plus, and I I was part of the group for a while. It's one of the things that I miss on Facebook. But it is true that it grew, and there was so many people, and there is this interest, and there is this need for this conversation. And I just wonder what the right setting for this conversation is. If we're not going to have this big coffee table books because we can't even afford them for once. And probably this community is all over the world. So, you know, all this logistics and how this uh, Facebook group was very fruitful, but it does come with other other challenges. And I wonder, like, you're, you're I don't know how active you are, but you're definitely f familiar with the Canon project in Europe. And how are the parallels on it with it between the two projects? I don't know how much you can speak to, to the Canon project. The Canon project? is an outgrowth of uh, an Oystat conversation. As I said, Chris Van Houten out of uh, Brussels, Belgium, uh, had been working on this idea called the what they, what they were referring to as the theater timeline, him and, and some of his, his contemporaries. And we kind of found each other on some level. When I got more involved with Oystat is when someone said, hey, you should talk to this person or you should check this out and chris chris opened my eyes because he he had a whole series of avenues of, of things to view and to roads to get lost on down on the great thing about the canon project was that came uh that was its the, that idea kind of existed it was i want to say that maybe the 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 We'll, we'll use a shorthand for it. The the archive, let's just call it that, was kind of like a, a crossroads. And it gave an opportunity for people to kind of to connect a little bit more. And it pushed that ball down the road. So when Chris asked me to be part of the canon, I, was, I jumped at it because I'm like, A, I'll travel. You tell me where to go, I will travel. You want to go pick apples in Albania? I will be there. Just plane ticket and I'm there. You know? And so one, one, uh, one Christmas I went to visit him 
and he introduced me to Francisca Ritter of the TU in Berlin. And she was working on a documentation project of the, uh, the, the history of the opera houses and theater theaters that the Germans uh, during the, when the Nazis had come into, into power, they were doing a survey of all the opera houses. Now they had done through, I want to say somewhere around 300 some. So there are all these original documents in the Teus archive, which are now all digitized and online for anyone to look at. And it was amazing because here was the first time I got to see history completely outside of my circle. And this is what Chris was talking about. He's like, where does this stuff fit in? You know, he took me to the, uh, uh, the Leipzig opera house. And in their basement, of all places, they have a museum, uh, what they call the technical cabinet. And there is things that I have never seen. Stage machines, stage mechanics, lights, sound. And what, what, what's, what's very funny is, is they have the West German side and then they have the East German side. And they're two very different looks. One is like all like, oh yeah, this is really like, you could recognize this equipment. It looks like built. Some of it is hand built. And then you go to the other side and it's like old teletype and telex machines that have been cobbled together to make a console of some sort. So it's like, wow. And, and to get back to the Canon project, the Canon project was an outgrowth from the Ritz R, the Royal Institute of Theater and Cinema Studies in Brussels, Belgium. And where, where Chris works and he was doing this project, he, that's how he was getting students involved. So he had on the wall, a large piece of paper and the students came up and they would plunk things up on the wall to be like, this is when incandescent light came along. This is when, um, Sabatini came up with his ideas and so on and so forth. And so they were doing this, but unless you knew that they were doing it, it was, it was, it was just kind of something that existed and nobody knew a lot about it. The larger Canon project, which now includes a lot of schools in the Erasmus system is a huge opportunity to now bring students from different schools in different countries together. So you have Germany, you have Spain, you have the, um, Sweden. Uh, and so all of a sudden now you've got people talking to each other and now there's more emphasis and an avenue for students who are maybe a little bit more technically inclined than say design inclined who now have, Hey, we can talk about this. There are other, there are other geeks and nerds like us who can, who can enjoy this stuff. And, you know, maybe not necessarily get into the minutia of it, but be like, oh, wow, I did, you know, because what's old is new again, you know, how that happens, how that cycle happens. So the Canon project is, is amazing. And I, and I hope um, more people support it. You don't necessarily have to be European centric to, to participate in it. It's, I think they would be happy to have any kind of folks who are genuinely interested and, and, and genuinely giving to, to a project like that. And they would, they would jump at it, I think. No, oh, it's great. I think it's really important that, um, like you said, everything old is new again. And it's and and I've recently worked on a project here where the artistic director was like, "I want the old park hands. I want the old park hands. Don't want the LED ones. I don't want. I don't want that." You know, and it's like it's now become like 
for, for her it was like a thematic look that she wanted to do. It wasn't about the technology or the particular lighting because the, the lights were going to be seen. So she wanted it to be that that old school look rather than everything here is LED. Everything's probably mostly LED now, especially here because we're across the border from China, I mean Hong Kong. And, um, yeah, so it's really actually hard to find. And the lighting guy's like, I don't have any anymore. Like we threw them all out. And she's like, why? <laughs> Uh, and 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 that and that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to know that we went from something that was very very simple, which was a lamp, a can, and a plug, and we could make such magic happen. Um, I used to have a, I used to have a, a, a boss who used to love the Altman 360Q, which is your standard Altman six by twelve, six by nine, and he said he could take that, throw it off the top of a building, let it smash into pieces. Call up, call up Altman and fix it himself. He could order the parts and fix it, you know. But nowadays, and there's nothing wrong with the newer technology. It, it, if it's if it's more energy efficient, it does this, it does that. It's great. The problem is you you can't work on it, you know, unless you have a have the 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 understanding of all the the intricacies of that technology. You know, our cars. While it's wonderful that we want to go to green cars, energy cars, you can't work on them, you know, and, and maybe that's wistful thinking. And I, I understand that, but we're, we're going to run into that situation, which you talk about where, you know, we're going to want to do a show that takes place in what will eventually be classic America or something like that. And this, uh, no, we need the, the stage lights that look like this, that do this. And people are going to be like, well, we're now we're going to have to build them. And we just threw them all away. Yeah. So, it's like uh, it's like you're 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 just you just you're darned if you do you're darned if you don't you know yeah. it's kind of like oh come on yeah and then we'll need some like blueprints or schematics to be able to redo at least some good pictures to go and get uh to be able to rebuild them it's funny you say that there are two places at the eisenhower uh collection he was a he was a vendor or he had he was an engineer for strand and so all the mold a majority of the molds a majority of the drawings are all in that archive so if you want to rebuild some of these lights those drawings are there they exist there's a and i don't know if the, the fellows are still there but there's a there's a company which both of you might be familiar with called upstaging which is located uh in near dekalb illinois and there are Last time I was there, which was quite some time ago, there were three fellows working in a, a back corner of their shop, rebuilding lighting instruments. And it, 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 you would find these old classic instruments and they would sit there and make parts, rebuild parts, things like that. They had a lot of the drawings. And if you walk into their shop, they had the history of the, the, the ellipsoidal along their ceiling. Like they rebuilt them. They all work. And they have like little tags. And if you walk through their offices, there are some old lighting instruments. And what was funny was they and we'd be like, wow, you guys are really kind of, you know, into this. And he's like, no, 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 no. The real nerds are the people that take the old lamps and have them revacuumed and reuse them. Those people, those people are really into it. So I, I, people, people think, oh, you're, you're, you're really a nerd about this. I was like, no, no, no. I'm just entry level. I am just barely putting my, my toes in the water. There are some people who are all in. So 
the the drawings are out there. You can build a lot of this stuff on your own if you have the means and the and the and the time to do it. I wonder what you've learned from what you've seen with both projects, both archiving and the Canon project. And uh, in my experience, this is information that it's a little older than what we get into and what we're just but now what's our responsibility with the information we have right now and the information we are generating like do we have to document how is it that we should be documenting our current practices and our current so in in one moment we're going to be part of history right and how do we preserve what we are doing right now or is it worth preserving that's that's the big question it's and that's what a lot of 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 people who own a lot of this material whether it be at your local theater or in a university setting is i i may have 20 park hands but those 20 park hands are eating up a lot of space and so maybe i'll keep five of them because i'm going to get all this new stuff and i need a place to put it you know space is space is always the the thing we never have enough of um, we never have enough of that resource to, to to be like keep everything. Otherwise, we'd all have warehouses and museums of of all this stuff, and we just we just don't. I look at at the the way that we document things. It's every generation comes up with its own way of of doing it. You know, for the long, for a while, it was hieroglyphs. You know. Tr- taking a hammer and carving it in the stone and saying, this is our scratch upon the earth. And this is how we're going to let the world know that our society exists. Nowadays, nobody can read it, but it, it's there. Someone took the time to, to do it. You know, then it was, well, we'll handwrite it. Then we'll type it. Then we'll, now we can digitize it. You know, uh, I, I think that whatever you save, if, if it's valuable to you, there's going to be eventually someone who's going to, 50 years from now, you may never meet who's going to look at this and say, wow, I don't know who this person was, but they saved all this stuff. And it is amazing. You know, uh, uh, it's, I, I wish I, I wish I had three lifetimes to, 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 to capture the, you know, take all the, you know, take a, a, a diskette out of my head with all the memories and plunk it into something. And it could, you know, get all, all, all put together and organized and things like that. But this is just not how, how it works. Some things are just invariably going to be lost to, to, to time. So whatever efforts we do, I think is a step above what, 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 what hasn't been done. We, we, we do a little bit more. Okay. That's great. You know, and whoever comes after us is going to come up with a, a, a method. They're going to say, you know what, we got a better way of doing this. And, or we may look at it and they may say, wow, what they did was really complicated. There, there, there's a better way to do this. So, as long as we keep showing that there's value in these things, there's not only. Um, I mean, people like to know that there's monetary value in everything. I mean, who hasn't watched Antiques Roadshow or one of those shows where they say, "Oh, I found this in my 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 auntie's uh, attic, and it's a book, and it turns out to be the first copy of the Guggenheim Bible, and it's worth a million dollars." And they had no idea that that it existed. You know, people are like, oh wow, now it's valuable. You know, there's that side of the group, but there's also people who who look at knowledge and they say it's valuable, and I'm going to save it. People may not realize that they need it, but I'm going to save it as best I can so that it ends up inspiring a, 
some person somewhere and sometime in a library because eventually someone's going to run across it. I, I believe, you know, you just got to know that it exists. And that's, that's the trick is getting people to understand that this stuff still exists and that hopefully it doesn't disappear before they have an opportunity to see it. And now a moment for our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Harlequin. Harlequin is the world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. Established in the UK over 40 years ago, Harlequin is the preferred performance floor for the world's most prestigious dance and performing arts companies, theatres and schools. From the Royal Opera House to the Bolshoi Theatre, the New York City Ballet to the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Harlequin's experience and reputation are founded on the development, manufacture and supply of a range of high-quality sprung and vinyl floors specifically designed for dance and the performing arts. Backed by an engineering team and independent research, Harlequin also designs, builds and refurbishes stages working with stage engineers and theatre consultants in leading venues across the world. Harlequin is the global leader in its field with offices in Europe, the Americas and Asia-Pacific. Find out more at harlequinfloors.com, H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N floors.com. It's also interesting because I think a lot of the time that technology now is the pace at which it's evolving is so fast. So, you know, a new product comes out and then two two years later it's something else and the technology is so, you know, the Parkan was around for a very significant amount of time, right? And so it's we associate that with that that era whereas now it's like okay we might look back and go oh well laser phosphor projectors were yeah they were around for five years but now they're all rgb right like and then it was like a hot second that that was a thing and it's just worth noting but nobody's going to go back and rebuild a laser phosphor projector because why you know (laughs) you know you're going to go back to pg projectors and you know those kind of sort of constructs for projectors or you're going to go to the high i just find it just these little it's hard to look because we're in the middle of it and, and it'll only be back in retrospective that we'll see the significant technological developments and shifts in 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 technical theatre in retrospect, right? So like you said, you don't really know what you should be saving, but the good thing is if you are saving stuff and you are archiving it, that later when people are looking back on it, they can say, okay, that was a significant moment, that was a significant moment or shift, you know. There is someone in a small storefront theater or a small basement theater or a small college room somewhere who's coming up with the next great idea. And that's really where the, the, the technology gets its test is someone says, you know, I have this lightness, man. I have this projector. I want to put them together, but I have no idea how to do it. I'm a college student. I got some time on my hands. I'm going to sit there and tinker with it and things like that. And before you know it, all of a sudden it becomes the, the, the next big thing you know uh, it's we we've seen the meme of how you know these mega corporations started out in someone's garage and and it's it's kind of become cliche but really that's how this a lot of this stuff comes along that's how we cut our teeth in in the performing arts world is we we don't have a lot of money we go to the hardware store and we buy a few things and we you know even if it's just us taking you know clip lights painters clip lights and putting a color bulb in it or something we're creating our our methods for for how this is done you know it goes from torches to colored water to overhead projectors to you know someone's got some you know i and i think that's kind of the shame that's the thing that's a shame that we lose is those those 
steps of creativity of, of, you know, that all of a sudden, you know, that, that, that idea just bursts into to reality. Who knows why that person was inspired to do it, but you know, I want to hear the story of the person that did that. That's cool stuff. Or someone who said, said, let's make a moving light, but it has to be cooled by water. And you go, who in their right mind, we would look at them and go, who in the right mind would ever do something like that? But they tried it. You know, somebody tried it. And you're just like, all right, I guess it's dangerous as <laughs> all, it's all get out, but sure, why not? <laughs> you know? It, at least, at least, it's better than the than the than the probably the people that said, you know, here, here, oh, I pulled this berry off the tree. Here, try this, and they die. And you go, oh, okay, uh, maybe we should do something else with this berry, you know, because there's always that first person who, who who's willing to try it, and they suffer the consequences for someone later to be like, you know, maybe we should boil this instead <laughs> and, and and see what else it does, and all and all of a sudden it turns into the next most wonderful thing. Who knows? But I don't think we're going to lose that inventive, creative bug that's part of the human nature. I don't think, but I don't know. I, I think there is probably something in your house or your home or wherever you're at that uh, you said, you know what, if I just move this over and do this, genius. My God, my desk, it works so much better. Oh my gosh. My, th- this, th- I, I, this kitchen is so, oh, this is so much better. And you know, if I do we, we all have moments of genius. We just, we, we, for us, we just kind of take it as every day. It's just us doing it, just doing what we normally do. It's not as though it's only until someone says, I'll pay you a million dollars for that idea that we go, really? I, it's, it's like iced coffee. Who here hasn't had some, somebody in their family put a couple of ice cubes and now Starbucks charges $4 to put ice in your coffee. I mean, come on! <laughs> it, it's it's just like it's it it's these silly little things that you know people kind of take for granted, and all of a sudden, someone knows how to market it and knows how to turn it into something, and can charge X amount of dollars for it. That's great. It's cool. So, tell us a little bit about life and live entertainment in the Caribbean when you were in uh, Trinidad and Tobago. I learned very quickly that I have to take my North American hat off. And I have to go in there as uh, as a total beginner, uh, because countries that are different than the kind of the let's let's just say the European style, because that's kind of America is based off of um, this presentational style, and they tell their stories in a different way. There's still presentation. There's still an audience. There's still you know a, a, a circle in which these stories are told. It's just that the flavor is different. Sure, they'll do plays, but it's unlikely that you're going to see the great canon of Shakespeare plays. They're going to do things that are their stories um, because that's their influence. The, the, oh, I, I'm all for it. The, 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 two, the two things that Trinidad and Tobago do very, very well is music and, and dance. And when they combine those two in terms of carnival, it's it's just it's an amazing experience. When you go and experience what is more traditional carnival, which is the the mass characters, whether it be fancy sailors, the Dame Lorraines, the blue demons, the bats, things like that, that's old carnival. 
those, those characters come to life and it's an opportunity to stand outside yourself and kind of play a different role and, and things like that, as opposed to the carnival, which is much more Vegas show like. Um, and it has its place, I guess. If you want to, if you want to do that, I'm totally fine with that. The other thing that I found great connection with was the music. Cause when I thought of, uh, steel pan music, people think, oh, it's a steel drum. Sure. A steel, you make a pan, a steel pan from a steel drum. I, I've now, I now refer to it as, a, as pan music as opposed to steel drum music. That's just my own little idiosyncrasy. It is amazing to hear it played and not just a single one like you would hear in like a, a like a, a cheesy commercial, but like really played. It is an experience to stand, you know, this close within like face to face to an entire steel orchestra on the street and feel the vibe of them playing, feel the speed of it, the energy of it. it you kind of go, wow, this is a different flight. This, this reaches me in a very different way that most, that Americanized music doesn't. Sure, we can listen to our Elvis Presleys and our Metallicas and our, you know, that kind of music. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's something very visceral uh, about the live experience in any genre. You go to your orchestra hall and you listen to the sounds of, of cellos and basses and horns and play that music, you know, playing Dvorak. And you're just like, wow, it just comes to life. And it, 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 its size outweighs, you know, the, the, the little CD that you listen to it on. You know, you're listening to it live. And it's the same thing with pan music. You stand in front of it and you hear it and you feel it pass through you and it penetrates you in, in some sort of way. And you go, you know, you, you're just like, I, why did I not appreciate this earlier? Um, Calypso music, uh, Soka. Soka is okay. Soka is a kind of a, it's kind of like sped up Calypso. If you, if you ask me, I can't tell the difference between some of the differences in, in Soka and that's my own fault. And that's also because I just didn't listen to enough of it, I guess, but it's immensely popular. But Calypso is Dr. Hollis Liverpool, also known as Chalk Dust because that's his Calypso name would say that the Clipsonian is the poor man's newspaper and that the, the Clipsonian was the person that told you what was going on in the country and would sing about who's cheating on who or the government, why the government is wrong or why this or why that. And it's just, it's such a, it's such a thing that myself as a, as someone from the States does, we don't experience that. We don't, we're, we're too big of a country to, to have that kind of thing. You know, it, our form of gossip was going to a corner store or sitting in front of someone's house at one time in ye, ye oldie days. And now it's the, how do we share? We, we, how do we share these, these, these stories? Now it's all electronic and we lose so much of the nuance of what that connection is. But you go down to, go down to Trinidad and you go to, uh, you go see Three Canal at the Big Black Box, which is a, is an open air space that they've created. And it's, it's amazing. You will get a bunch of people there on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, and Three Canal uses it as their venue to perform their music. They'll have, uh, uh, they had, they actually had the new play festival there because they, they, they were willing to offer their space for it. They will also have, uh, new musicians, young musicians come in there. And it's just, it's such a neat thing because you're not in a, a, a club shoulder to shoulder. This is outside music. This is something where you can hear it down the street kind of thing. 
I think that's one of the things, that's a flavor of the Caribbean that you cannot create anywhere else. That is something that is so inherent to that, that region, things like that. So that's what I got out of it. There's, there is a great passion and heritage. Anna, you were saying that you're in Hong Kong or in, so one of the things that is probably popular is, and I, and maybe this is, I don't know if this is Chinese opera or things like that, but there's this passing down of roles through families. You know, certain people play certain roles over and over and over again. You know, father passes to father or father to daughter, whatever it may be. And that's how some some of the history of playing mass characters or music is passed down through families. So there was a, a fella I worked with whose name completely escapes me, um, whose father was a famous Calypsonian named Penguin. And he became a Calypsonian as well. And he sings his father's songs, but he also creates his own music, you know, and uh, there are people who just, like I said, they, they don't view it as, oh, I'm just doing it because my, my father did it. It's because I love this music. This music speaks to me. It's their voice. It's their voice of, of what's oppressing them. It's their voice of joy. It's their voice of what's going on or what has happened. That's, uh, that's, that's really uh, like I said, you have to go and stand in front of it and have it and 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 exist with it for 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 you to really for because I can sit here and ramble on about it, but it, I don't think it quite captures the the essence of, of of what it is. And how do you merge these two worlds when you teach? I don't. How do I merge these two worlds? Or do they merge uh, at all? But I guess you have to, in some way, it's the two parts that you are living in. Well, okay. So I'll, I'll tell you my mistake when I first started teaching down there. My mistake when I first started teaching down there was I, I tried to teach like, an, like someone from the States, which was the wrong way to go. Because I said, why don't you know this information? You know, why don't you know how this works? Why don't you know how that works? Blah, blah, blah. And, I, and I, it took me two years and a lot of, a lot of conversation with the 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 folks that I was I was I was working with to say like look, pare this down, pare this down, pare this down, pare this down. Get to the essence of really what it is that you that you want to talk about, because when you listen to a calypso, it's not about how fancy they can they can sing the song. It's are they getting to the point? You know, we we, we tell a very simple story. You know. You know, the, we we're going down the street and we're having a little, we're having a little fun. We're doing this, we're doing that, so on and so forth. I, I don't see it necessarily as a merging of two worlds. It's just my evolution as, as, as a person. I, I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago or nine years ago, however long, you know, that person is gone. That person who was uptight and had, you know, thought he knew everything is is gone because he went to a he he ventured outside of himself, went to some other place, and was receptive enough to be like, okay, look, I'm clearly making a mistake. You teach me, and and I maybe didn't get all the way. I, I think you know if I stayed there much much longer, it, it would be I, it would be I'd be much more understanding of certain things that they do. But I got a greater appreciation of learning how to slow down, how to take your time a little bit, because we 
are myself as 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 someone from the states is we're wound really too tight <laughs> we we need to we need to back off the gas a little bit here because i think that's part of why everyone's so nutso they want to oh we got to consume 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 and i think where my world's met was when i went down there and all of a sudden it was like croissant croissant joseph i knew that name was going to come to me croissant joseph is the son of Peguin, and you should look him up anyway whoo i'm sorry that completely jumped into my head while, while i was thinking that croissant joseph anyway but yeah, I, I learned a lot from 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 listening to Croissant because he just he he it was very funny because you would see the guy that worked in the office and did all the kind of the machinations of of helping run the school, and then you'd watch him perform and you'd be like, "Wow, he, this is a completely different person," and you know he never let the work that he did interfere with who he really was, and I think that's. That's always the big challenge is if your work interferes with what interests you and what drives you and what, what, what makes you, you, I, I think then you're losing an, a part of yourself and, you know, you're losing an essence of, of being able to do like cool stuff. Mm. That's really good. That's good reflections. So tell us a little bit about the Prague Quadrennial and your involvement in that. Okay. Uh, the Prague Quadrennial is clearly older than I am. Uh, it started out as, again, it was when I got involved with USITT. When you're part of USITT, you get um, brought into OISTAT, not as a voting member, but you have, you, you're, you're considered a member through your, your, your OISTAT, what they refer to as your, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I said, well, you know, someone, again, I think it was, Chris, who's like, you should go, you know, check it out. And I was like, all right, I'll go. So I went and actually what got me involved was I was, a, I, I decided to be a volunteer and that's how I learned more about what does what. And I stood in front of uh, Damu, which is the design school there. And it was like, and we now I had, who was I? I was, I was with a woman who was from France and it was me. and. It was like the two people who don't speak Czech at all and be like, yeah, you go here, you go there, you do this here. Can what, what are these shows? And it was just like, it was so funny. Um, she was wonderful, wonderful. And I, I eventually ran into her years later. She came to the PQ again and it was really wonderful to see her. And I, uh, I got involved with that. And again, it was a stepping outside of myself. I, I took an opportunity that was afforded to a lot of people. It wasn't just for me, but I said, you know what? I, I've never done this. I got a little bit of scratch on me, a little bit, a little bit of money. Why not? And, and I, I, I haven't looked back. I, I, I went there. I saw a wonderful, wonderful show called uh, the Gollum cube. And it was in a small space that got, that got turned into a theater kind of performance space. They had a bar and then off to one side wasn't a venue. It wasn't like a, a seated venue. It was kind of like a room and inside was four screens and you either stood on the inside or the outside of it. And the, 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 this movie, the Gollum cube played and you walked around it and you followed the character. It was amazing. Um, I have the script around here somewhere, 
because I was so blown away by it. And it was, I went, oh my God, there's, again, my very narrow American United States view of the world was it's like, let's tear this asunder. Let's tear this apart. And I was like, I want to check that out. And then I saw, you know, student work from other schools. And I was like, where is this stuff? This stuff has been here around all the time. You know, I you go in your mind, where has this been my whole life? It's like, listen, listen, fella, it's been here the whole time. You just haven't gotten off your dead butt and gone out there. So, so there's that. Uh, and again, again, credit to Chris. It, that's where I met Jerome Mackelberg, who is a hoot. He is all about stage machines. He, 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 again, he's a whole nother story into himself. Jerome is wonder is another wonderfully crazy human being. And I love him to death. And I met him. And again, he was like, Oh, you want to be involved in this? Oh, you want to be involved in that? So on and so forth. And so I went, so I went in 2015 and then I went in 2019 and I, I actually participated in the PQ talks and I gave this atrocious, atrocious, uh, talk on color and the, and not necessarily like, Oh, you need to choose this color, or that color, but like how there's more, we need to change our language kind of thing. And it was awful. And I, I look back and I go, I really said that. Oh, it's just awful. And Pavel Drabek, who was the, the, the curator along with, I can't remember the woman's name. I want to say it was Anna something or other. And it kills me. Really. I can't give proper credit to people. They gave me a chance to just stand up there and give something to try. And if, and looking back now, I'm like, eh, it was a little cringy. Um, but you know, at least I went and did it, you know, and I got, again, I got to meet more people and got to, and that's when I started doing the, the podcast or for a while of wine interview people. It's like, I was like what you're doing here. It was like, I want to talk to people. I just want to hear what things are and what's going on. And I made a, I want to say about a hundred episodes of just various people that I would run across. I started with Trinidad and then moved from there, but to get back to PQ circle back. So this time around now, a, I was brought on as an associate curator for the national uh, and emerging exhibition for USITT's PQ project. So I'm working on that. Uh, a little doing some of it is the the conversation of resources and, and whatnot, but I'm also doing uh, helping put together the 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 visual and the uh, electronic entry point through the website and stuff like that. And I I I, I hope my fingers are crossed that you know this craziness subsides a little bit and travel because I want to go see the world. I want to go back to 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 Prague. And and cross the Charles Bridge again, and cross the river, and and just go check it out because I really miss. I love the world, and I think the world is an awesome place, and I want to do many laps of it. Um, but but yeah, PQ twenty twenty three. I can't pitch it enough. It's the same thing with World Stage Design, which is going to be in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Which I couldn't give another. Which I'd love to give a pitch for. That's in August, and if you can go, go. If you can't, I think they doing stuff electronically. Okay, that was my shill, my commercial. Amazing for that. <laughs> All right, just to wrap up here, a uh, couple of more questions. What is your favorite thing about your job? Favorite thing about my job is that it's mine, and I get to decide what it is and how I get to do it. 
I love that. I love that. That's one of my favorite answers so far. And what would be the one thing that you could change about the industry or your job if you could? What, what would you like to see shift? I think one of the things that needs to, to, to shift is, uh, and it, this is the, the total non-sexy answer, is infrastructure. We, as a community, need to figure out ways to help bridge students coming from design schools, art schools, engineering schools, business schools, whatnot, into, into the world of the creative and performing arts. I think we've seen the advocation for getting internships paid for. We're looking for the, the advocation for um, diversity and representation. We're seeing the advocation for better workplaces and, and things like that. I, I think that while, you know, I, and this may get me in a little bit of Dutch with, with some people is I think the summer theater system is broken. I think, I think it needs to be rethought. I think trying to cram five shows into 10 weeks is ridiculous. I think we're, we're, we're setting people up to fail. Don't get me wrong. If you're, if you want to be part of a team, you have to, you have to do things that, that stink. And that's what builds tighter bonds as you move your way up the professional ranks. The more and more things stink, the tighter those bonds get. And then when someone calls you up and says, I need you in Oklahoma City to, to, to light a dance show, and you've worked with that person and you've gone through all those trials and tribulations, you'll, you'll bend over backwards to go because you've, you've built those bonds. But to get there, we need a better system for people not only um, helping the next group um, come up, but also we need those group of people to be advocates for themselves, advocates for their mental health, advocates for better pay and better working conditions, advocates for all the things that are important to them today. My generation, we had our shot at it and we failed at a lot of things. I mean, we, we still see, we're still suffering through the problems of harassment or gender bias or any of these, these things that continue to, to come up. There needs to be some of these positions made available to people with with not necessarily new ideas, but this energy to be able to to move it forward. Don't get me wrong. I think there are some wonderful artistic directors and managing directors out there, but they've become institutionalized. They've stayed there. It becomes it's not about the theater, it's about them. And that I think is part of the issue. Some theaters have found ways to to the bridge the gap. If we can do something about now it all boils down to this theater entertainment we, it's not show fun it's show business it's always going to be a business and until someone says we're it's not about the almighty dollar it's going to be about the almighty dollar what you're doing in the performing arts is is a privilege you're not entitled to it you have to work to get to earn that privilege it's not as though you're born one day and you're entitled you know, there's a stamp in your passport that says this person is entitled to one free uh, career in the theater. I don't think any, I don't think anyone would say that. Okay. So I think people need to get off that notion. Oh, you're entitled to it. It's like, no, no, no. We all work to, to, to earn those privileges. Once, once I get the privilege of being say a member of, of the uh, USA, there, there are, there are privileges that come along with that. I don't get out there just because I have a name. I get there because I work my butt off to get there. I don't get to work on a Broadway show until I go through regional theater or 
storefront theater or things like that. I have to earn those privileges. And I think people need to manage those expectations because you can't start at the top. You got to start where it sucks and then keep working through all that suck until you get to the point where it's you're, you're, you've made a name for yourself and you've hardened yourself and you've steeled yourself and you're like, bring it on. I'm not phased. I'm not going to sweat it. You know, you can say all the horrible things you want. I'm still going to have a few laughs and I'm still going to outwork you. I'm going to hustle you. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to make it so that you remember my name in all caps, like <laughs> MF doom. That's how it is. <laughs> I love it. Got a little worked up there. <laughs> oh, oh no. It's, it's, it's the thing that it, it, it's, it's, I, it's like the speech that I wish I heard when I was starting it. If, if you're a theater school, a high school, a performing arts organization, put your people in business classes, teach them how to, to, to start companies, teach them how to, to pay their taxes and get those and get those and get those licenses. Because again, people who try and create storefront theater with their, with their buddies and pals, that system is broken. They keep doing the same damn thing and they, they expect to get a different result. Why do these storefront theaters don't work? Because people don't understand the business of how it works. And it's not until years later that they go, oh, well, we should have done that. Let's, let's, let's arm these people with some of these better skills. I know schools have limited time and limited resources and, and limited abilities to, to do this because they, they, have, they have programs that they want to do too. But I think you're doing a disservice by not at least making the effort to one semester of some sort of business class of some sort of how to start a non-for-profit because you shouldn't be learning that in grad school. You should be learning that from, from the get-go because if you're really into this, then it's, it's all in. And I know that, and I'll close on this. I have been very, very lucky to, to stumbled into some wonderful opportunities. Some of them was happenstance. You know, I called at the right time. I met someone and I jumped at the opportunity. If my career as running shows and things like that is done, I'm okay with that. I had a good run at it. It's hard for me to go see shows. It really is. Because if you sit in a booth eight, eight shows a week for you know weeks on end, for years on end, at some point you don't want to go to the theater. And I'm okay with that. If so, I, I would rather help that next person you know, be like, hey, man. You know, I didn't get this. I didn't get this coaching while I I was uh, while I was coming up, and so I had to learn it this way. I'm going to give you a little bit of coaching. You can do with it what you want. I know you may think of listening. Oh, he's a has been. Oh, yeah, he doesn't do this. He hasn't designed a Broadway show. That's okay. I never intended to design a Broadway show. I never intended to, uh, and I haven't. But I, I never got into this going. Oh, I'm going to be the greatest, bestest thing. I said this looks like fun. I was in high school. And I was a nerdy kid and I played band music in the theater and I wasn't athletic. So I went into the theater program and I found my community and I found acceptance and I found all these wonderful people who were like me on some level. And it just kept going that way. So, you know, to the, to the, to the kid who, who, who doesn't feel like, you know, they, 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 are, they aren't special. You are, you, you are, you're wonderful. You have immense value and it, you're just voice has to is going to come out in a different way and that's okay you know that's that's what's most important you know you're beautiful wonderful creatures of value and we need to remind each other of that 
you know, and, and once we, if we can, if we can just get over ourselves, take some of this ego out, take some of this desire out and just be like, man, you're cool. I'm cool. Let, let's go make cool stuff. Awesome. On that note, how can people reach out to you, learn more about uh, the projects you're working on? Um, yeah. Well, the easiest way, uh, of course, is through uh, the Archiving Technical Theater History Facebook group. Sign if you do. If people who are listening to this do sign up for it, answer the questions. If you don't answer the questions, I'm not letting you in because there's more than there's robots. I I have spent more time kicking people out than 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 I care to say. You can always reach me at my email, which is archive tt two four. That's a r c h i v e. The letter T, the letter T again, and the number two four at Yahoo. Dot com. I don't really accept Facebook requests because I try and keep my life kind of separate. I don't have a Twitter. I don't. I I, it's, I I keep my 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 area kind of kind of small. But you can always find me. I'm traveling when when all this pandemic craziness kind of subsides. I'm always traveling. I'm visiting something for, with USATT. I'm doing something with Oystat. Say hi. You know, if 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 you're like, hey, you look like the guy that does, or what not come up say hi that's the best thing you can do i like that i'm happy to talk with you chit chat whatever um so archiving technical theater history which i think i spelled one way and most people spell it with er i think i spelled it re you anyway it the american way yet. <laughs> i did i did well g- guilty is charged <laughs> <laughs> But uh, you can find me there. I also uh, I do uh, oversee a lot of the USITT International page uh, as well. That's another Facebook group. But like I said, if if you if you're not on social media and if you if that's not really your thing, send me an email. Just send me a message at archive tt two four at yahoo.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rich, for spending some time with Theater Art Life, the podcast, and uh, really wish you the best for 2022. I I bow to your greatness. Thank you both. I think it's I think this is wonderful work. I'm glad you have each other because uh, I could have when when I was doing mine I could have really used a producer or someone to bounce ideas off of. Um, so I I hope you this is whatever episode this is. I hope you make a hundred more. I hope you make two hundred more. Well, I I hope. Yeah, we're I over hundred. We're over hundred now. So, and it's so good to meet people all across the world in different cultures doing their jam, and uh, it's very, very stimulating. So, and it's good to, like you said, it's good to bounce off with Anna and I together. It's it's, it's a nice jam. Excellent. Theater at Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only thirty-eight US dollars per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.